Well, 11 years ago, it took me a while to convince my wife to marry me, but she finally said yes. And when she did, we went out looking for an engagement ring. And uh, we, we looked at this old antique ring that I thought looked like something a witch would wear. So we passed that over. And we ended up with something at Macy's. Um, beautiful ring. But one thing I noticed is whenever she would show someone, especially women, in that first couple weeks, they wouldn't just take a quick glance and say, oh, pretty. They would grab her hand. They would look at this contour, they would look at this sparkle. They wanted to look at every angle of the diamond. And we don't think they're foolish for doing that, right? The worth and beauty of a diamond is worth having multiple perspectives of. And that's why we have four Gospels. The beauty and worth of Christ warrants multiple looks at our Savior. Each of the four Gospels gives us a different glimpse of Jesus. Last week, we learned that Matthew wants us to follow Jesus as the great teacher and hope of Israel and the world. He is the fulfillment of all that was promised in the Old Testament. This morning, we're going to learn that Mark wants us to follow Jesus as the sovereign, suffering son of of God. Mark wants us to follow Jesus as the sovereign, suffering Son of God. Now, in your pew, there should be a little manuscript or a little outline. Take a minute and find that in your pew. If it's not totally tattered by now, or turned into a spitwad, you'll notice that we have a very simple outline. And this is to help us because we're going through a whole book of the Bible this morning. So chapters 1 through 8, who is Jesus? He's the sovereign son of God. And then in the second half of the book, we learn that Jesus came to serve and suffer for others. And how do we follow him? We follow Jesus by suffering for his sake and serving like him. And the final point is Mark uses the failure of the disciples to highlight the faithfulness and patience of Jesus to save his followers. Now, I don't know if that little emoticon or emoji at the bottom, if you can discern what it is, but it's the guy going like this. Oh, brother. That's essentially what you do when you read the disciples in Mark is, oh, brother. But that's intentional. It teaches us something about Jesus. A little background to Mark. It's written by John Mark, traditionally, an assistant accompanying Paul and Barnabas on missionary journeys. It was written in Rome to believers who are being persecuted, which is significant because Mark highlights the suffering it takes to follow Jesus in discipleship. So picture this gospel going to those in Rome who are suffering for the sake of the gospel. Now Mark is the shortest gospel, and it gives us a vigorous and lively account of Jesus' life. One way you can think about that is 
he has a favorite word. Now on staff, we, we joke around because we all have favorite words. Pastor Lou's favorite word is so on and so forth. And he kind of does this, so on and so forth. My wife, one of her favorite words is good grief. Makes you think of Charlie Brown, good grief. Well, Mark's favorite word is immediately. Immediately. Look at, turn to chapter 1 in your Bibles of Mark. Look at verse 18. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Now to go to verse 20. And immediately he called them. And then verse 21. And they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath. It's almost like it's in fast forward. Remember the old VHS players? It's just immediately, immediately, immediately. Verse 23. Immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out. Now, what Mark is doing here is cutting to a different camera shot. You think about a fast-paced movie, right? First you see this blowing up. Then you see this angle, and it's blowing up from this angle, and then this person's running this way, and it's a quick, fast-paced story. And that's what we have in Mark. This is more like Avengers than it would be the movie Lincoln. Has anyone seen the movie Lincoln? I've heard from some that it is boring because it's a lot of deep dialogue. Now, some people would love that, but that's not what Mark is like. Matthew has all the teaching. Mark is action-packed thriller. Mark only has seven parables compared to 25 in Luke and 20 in Matthew. Only seven parables. For its size, Mark has the most miracle stories showing off the power of the Messiah. This is all intentional. Mark's lively story in the first eight chapters invites the reader to enter into the narrative world and experience the power and authority of the Son of God. So you, Mark is meaning for you to read this book and say, truly he is the sovereign Son. Of God with all authority. With all authority. So the first question Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? This is the most important question you can ever ask is who is Jesus? Time magazine has been around since 1923, so you can imagine how many issues they have. And the one issue that's brought in the most reader response is the one entitled, Who is Jesus? So whether you think Jesus is just a moral teacher, or if you think Jesus is just a prophet or some religious figure or a made-up myth, the whole world can't get this question out of their mind. Who is Jesus? Mark tells us right away, look at verses 1, 1 through 3. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There we have Christ, or Messiah. This is the anointed son of David, whose throne would be established forever to redeem his people. He's, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Now, when Mark uses the term of son of God, it's meant to show Jesus' unique relationship to God the Father. This is the actual son 
of God. And that's going to be very significant as we look at the first eight chapters. And finally, Isaiah 43 is quoted, Behold, I send my messengers before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So Jesus is the Lord who's predicted in 40, or Isaiah 43. And who is that in Isaiah 43? Who's the Lord? God himself. This is the sovereign son of God. This is God himself. Now go down to verses 21 through 28. Look at the authority that Jesus teaches with. Look at how he exercises authority over demons. And then also notice how people respond to him. It's all intentional. Mark is trying to give us a picture of the sovereign son of God. Verse 21, they went into Capernaum, and there it is again, immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished. Now you'll see the crowd responding to Jesus throughout the gospel in that way, and that's meant to enhance the sense of Jesus' authority. So the way people respond to Jesus is very instructive. It's meant to help us respond in the same way. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. They had not heard teaching like this. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Listen to that demon cower in front of the presence of the sovereign son of God. This isn't just an exorcism where you pray and you sing and the demon comes out. Jesus walks in, or this man walks in, the demon sees Jesus and is like, ah! But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even unclean spirits, and then they obey him. And once his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee, he is the sovereign son of God. Now, go to chapter 2. What we see in the first story here is that Jesus has authority to do whatever he says. Jesus has the authority to do whatever he says. And, and we see this in the story of the paralytic who is brought by four of his friends into a house. Now imagine this. It's a crowded room. Jesus is so famous that it's even crowded outside of the house. The houses then could hold about 50 people. And these four friends wanted their, their friend to be healed. He was paralyzed, maybe for life. We don't know. And so they thought, I know. We are so desperate, and we believe Jesus is so powerful. Let's climb on the roof. Let's take the roof off and lower him down. Now think about sitting at your kitchen table. You're, you're eating as a family, and you hear something above you. And suddenly, your friend who's been trying to text you is lowered down. 
because they really need to talk to you. It'd be a little strange, right? So when this happens, you're wondering, well, what's Jesus going to do with that? Certainly a slight rebuke is in order, right? Like, come on, wait in line. Everyone wants to talk to me. But what does Jesus do? He says, son, your sins are forgiven. What? That's even stranger. He loves the man, but he doesn't do anything about the paralysis. He's just said, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, this creates the first confrontation Jesus has with the leaders, the leaders of Israel who are opposed to Christ. This is where it all begins because he's claiming to do do what only God can do. So Jesus says, well, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Or get up, take your mat, and walk? Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. I I could say that to Cody. Hey, Cody, your sins are forgiven. And no one quite knows if they are or not. But if Cody was lying on the ground sick, and I said, Cody, get up, and he got up, then, well, that's provable, right? So Jesus is going to prove that he indeed has the authority to forgive sin by raising the paralytic to walk. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus claims to be able to forgive sins directly as God alone can. You'll remember when, uh, in the Old Testament, when um, David had sinned, Nathan the prophet did pronounce that David's sins were forgiven, but listen to how he did it. The Lord has put away your sin. So Nathan didn't have the authority to say, David, your sins are forgiven. He says, the Lord will put them away. Jesus says, I, in fact, am the one who's forgiving your sin. I have authority to forgive sin. Looking through the rest of these chapters, Mark continues to print to present Jesus as the sovereign son of God. In chapter 4, verses 39 through 41, Jesus commands the winds and the waves to obey him. Now what's so significant about that is that in the scriptures, in the Old Testament scriptures, it's only God who has sovereignty over the wind and the waves and the sea. Only God can part the Red Sea and redeem his people. And that's exactly what we see Christ doing. He has lordship over the sea. We also see it soon after when he walks on the water. Remember his disciples think they see a ghost? And Jesus says, don't be afraid, it's I. He is sovereign over the sea. In chapter 5, we see Jesus heals a demoniac. The demons recognize him as the son of God and they cower In chapter 5, verses 21 through 43, he heals a woman and raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. Now, there's something in Mark called Markin Sandwiches, which essentially is one whole story, but then in the middle of the story, you get a snapshot of a different story. And they're meant to be compared to each other, and they're meant to help interpret each other. So in this story, you have a woman who's been bleeding, She comes up by faith and touches the garment of Jesus, and she's healed. Now Jairus, Jairus has a daughter who needs to be raised from the dead. And this woman is healed in the middle of the interaction with Jesus. So the question is, will he have faith to see his daughter 
raised. And he did have faith. And so the daughter was raised. So Jesus raises from the dead. Now what's interesting is he doesn't raise from the dead like Elijah or Elisha raised from the dead. Listen to how Elijah raises the widow's son in 1 Kings 17. And then we'll compare it to how Jesus raises Jairus' daughter. Then Elijah stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came into him again. So he had to do a lot of work, didn't he? He had to lay down on him three times. He had to plead with the Lord three times. It was hard work to raise this this widow's son from the dead. Now, look at how Jesus raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. Jesus commands this little girl, and she obeys. He is the sovereign son of God. The deaf hear, the mute speak. Throughout the first eight chapters, the mighty son of God acts with authority and power. So who is Jesus, according to Mark? The sovereign son of God. And the king. I think I heard someone say king. That's right. He's the king. Let's go now to our second question and third question. We're going to turn them into one long question. What did Jesus come to do and how do we follow him? What did Jesus come to do and how do we follow him? Mark answers this in the second half of his book. And there's an important transition that happens. This is the key turning point in the book of Mark. And this is Peter's confession. You'll remember when Jesus confesses who Jesus is, who is his identity. It says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ, the Messiah. You are the sovereign son of God. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, why would he do that? If Jesus is pursuing a people for his own glory, why is he strictly charging the disciples not to tell people who he is? It's like going out to evangelize and Jesus saying, no, 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 don't tell them about me. Be like, what? You're the Messiah. It's called the messianic secret. Jesus wanted his identity as Messiah to be hidden from the attention of the crowd long enough to teach the disciples what the Messiah had really come to do. So Jesus was teaching, giving his disciples enough time to realize this is the sovereign son of God. And no, I didn't come now to reign. I came to suffer and to die. So after Peter's confession, after they understand who he is, he begins to change. Jesus begins to change how he's revealing himself. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah. 
Jesus came to serve and suffer for others. He's moving from sovereignty to suffering in the second half of the book. Now, Jesus predicts his death three different times. Mark often does things in in threes or triads. There's three accounts of Jesus interacting with the water. There's three accounts of Jesus predicting his death. Mark's a good preacher. He knows you got to repeat something over and over and over again to really make a point. Now, Jesus predicts his death three times because Mark really wants you to understand this. And he really wanted his disciples to understand this. So, turn to Mark 8. This is the first time where Jesus predicts his death. Mark chapter 8, verse 31. Now, this is right after the confession that Peter made. And he, Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, not hard, plainly. So certainly, the disciples, knowing that he's the Son of God, knowing he's the Messiah, and he's speaking very plainly, said, okay, you're right, we'll submit to what you want, Jesus. You know what you're doing. Well, actually, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. Ouch. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter has this shining moment where he confesses Jesus to be the Christ. And then a moment later, he rebukes the eternal son of God that he he has to get his head on straight. A lot of pride there. It's easy to look at the disciples and Mark and say, oh, brother. But how much do we do this? When suffering comes into our life, are we always like, oh, yeah, God, you're right. This is good for me. Or are we a little bit more like Peter and get angry? Why do I have to go through this? We need to see our own hearts in the hearts of the disciples. We, too, need God's patient correction. So then, because Jesus sees that his disciples are struggling to understand his mission, he's going to give them teaching about what it means to follow him. Look at, eight, look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to, crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. These are hard words. These are just hard words. Jesus is talking about the cost of discipleship. I remember the first time I was confronted with the actual cost of following Jesus. I was in college and I had 
to that point, I had understood that to be a Christian, you, you basically say a prayer. You, you kind of give Jesus a tip of the hat, and you're good. Just believe that he died and resurrected. And then keep living how you want. In fact, <clears throat> in some of the courses I was taking in college, there's a book being distributed that taught that you didn't have to repent to be saved. That's adding a work to the gospel. And so you can, be, you can be saved by Christ without being his disciple. Well, Jesus' whole message in Mark has been repent and believe the gospel. That's watering down the gospel. We're all tempted to do that. J.C. Ryle wrote a classic book called Holiness. Kevin DeYoung says it's the one book he wishes every Christian would read. It's a classic. It's called Holiness. J.C. Ryle was an Anglican bishop who served in the 1800s. He, he came from a well-to-do family. Um, his father was in politics. He went to Cambridge. He was going to be in politics. And then he got really sick. And then his father lost all their money. And his only option was to be a preacher. With the level of, the level of uh, education he had, the only way to provide was to be a preacher. Now, that's an interesting way to get a call to the ministry is, well, can't make money any other way. Probably wouldn't suggest doing that. But he became so instrumental in helping the evangelical church understand the cost of discipleship. Listen to his words. He was converted by, the, by Ephesians 2, 8, 2, 8 and 9. By grace you've been saved through faith. It's all a gift. That's, that's how he was converted. And so what he's doing in this quote is wrestling with how do you take that, we're saved by grace through faith alone, and then have this hard passage on discipleship. They don't seem to mix. Here's what he says. Salvation is undoubtedly all of grace. It's offered freely in the gospel to the chief of sinners without money and without price. By grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But all who accept this great salvation must prove the reality of their faith by carrying the cross after Christ. They must not think to enter heaven without trouble, pain, suffering, and conflict on earth. They must be content to take up the cross of doctrine, so the teaching about the cross, and the cross of practice, meaning actually living it out. The cross of holding a faith which the world despises, and the cross of living a life which the world ridicules as too strict and righteous. They must be willing to crucify the flesh, to mortify the deeds of the body, to fight daily with the devil, to come out of the world and lose their lives, if needful for Christ's sake in the Gospels. Then he says, these are hard sayings, but they admit of no evasion. Jesus will teach this three more times in this Gospel. You can't take Christ as Savior without him being your Lord. We've just learned in the first eight chapters that he's the sovereign son of God. We can't use Jesus as a genie to get salvation out of him without his authority not having any implication on our life. The words of our Lord are plain and unmistakable. If we will not carry the cross, we shall never wear the crown. You think of Romans 8. 
for we shall be glorified with him because we've also suffered with him. Now, the disciples are really struggling with this, which I'm thankful for. I'm thankful that Mark is so hard on the disciples in this book because it really helps us understand the patience and love that Jesus has for us as we struggle to follow him. So the second time that Jesus predicts his death is in Mark chapter 9, verse 30. Turn there. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days, he will arise. Now certainly, certainly the second time he teaches the disciples that he's going to die, they get it, and they're going to start applying it in their life. Certainly, right? Well, let's see what, what they do immediately after. Verse 32. But they didn't understand the saying, and they were too afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and here's what they were talking about. I just had to laugh when I read this. Uh, and when he was in the house, he asked them, um, Hey guys, what were you discussing on the way? Um, well, they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who is the greatest. He had just told them, I'm going to die in Jerusalem as the sovereign son of God. And what do they do? Hey, I'm better than you. No, I'm better than you. No, you're not. I'm better than you. Where's the disconnect here? But don't we see ourselves? How often does the Lord need to patiently teach us what it means to follow him? I'm so glad that Jesus is patient. So again, Jesus says, Okay, these guys aren't getting it yet. Let me, let me teach them again what it means to follow me. So verse 35. And he sat down and he called the twelve. And he said to them, Guys, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and a servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. So to follow Jesus means to be a humble servant. To be a humble servant. All right, third time's a charm, right? Third time is a charm. So turn to Mark chapter 10, verse 32. Certainly the disciples are on board at this point. They're on the road going up to Jerusalem... And Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog and kill him. And after three days, he will arise. Very next verse. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. He was just saying, I'm going to be spit in the face. And they're saying, hey, can you do something for us? And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. 
Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? Essentially his suffering. And they said to him confidently, yeah, we're able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. Now, that really encourages me. Just pause there. The last people on earth as I read Mark, who I would assume would end up suffering for Jesus one day are the disciples. They just are not getting it. They're rebuking him. They're not serving. All they care about is their own glory. And yet Jesus says one day they will drink it because Jesus isn't done with them yet. He's going to continue saving them. The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard of it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Can't you just, there's, there can be sibling rivalry in my family, even with my little girls. And can't you just see it happening here? They just start, oh, those James and John, they're in the inner circle, now they want to rule the world. But what does Jesus do? Does he say, all right, new disciples, let's, I'm about to die. You're still talking about this. God, let's get some new men. No, Jesus patiently teaches them again. Verse 42, and Jesus called to them, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And then the very climax of all of Jesus' teaching on discipleship, what I think is the key verse in all of Mark, is verse 45. This would be a wonderful one to memorize with your kids this Christmas. For even the Son of Man... The sovereign Son of God came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The sovereign Son of God. Think of, think of a monarch, Queen Elizabeth. Think of a president. Think of, think of Alexander the Great. pushing all their authority aside in order to suffer. And yet that's exactly what the Son of Man came to do, and we are called to follow him in that. He came to serve us by becoming a ransom for our sin. Jesus is most critical of his disciples' failings in this gospel. In 4.13... Jesus said to him, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? In Mark 4.40, he said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? In, in Mark 6.50, he said, Take heart, it is I. Don't be afraid. And then in Mark 7, he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Over and over and over again, Jesus has to chide his disciples. Jesus is most critical of his disciples' failings in this gospel, and Mark is very intentional with that. You know what Mark is trying to teach us? 
Mark uses the failure of the disciples to highlight the faithfulness and patience of Jesus to save his followers. Mark uses the failure of the disciples to highlight the faithfulness and patience of Jesus to save his followers. Man, when I look back at what my walk with Jesus looked like in high school, it's like, ooh. And then when I look at it in college, it's like, oh. Then when I look at it last week, it's like, ooh. Aren't you glad that we have a patient Lord who is faithful? What's interesting is Mark gives us a little parable of what the disciples are like and what we are like. Turn to Mark 8.22. This is right before Peter makes his confession that Jesus is the Christ. The disciples are symbolized by this blind man. This story is meant to teach us something about the disciples and ourselves. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on them, he asked, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. So Jesus is healing this man in stages. It doesn't happen all at once, and that's very intentional. It's helping us understand how Jesus works in our own lives. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly right after that is when Peter says Jesus is the Christ. So this is a parable of how Jesus heals his disciples in stages. So, fellow disciples of Jesus, take heart that Jesus heals us in stages. Listen to 1 Thessalonians. Lou, Dan, and I are going to preach 1 Thessalonians in January, February, and March. Listen to this verse and the hope it gives us as we follow Jesus. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely or make you a disciple. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. So if you come this morning feeling like, I can't follow Jesus like this, you're right, apart from him. You're right, apart from him, which is why Mark has more chapters on the last week of Jesus' life than anything else. Because at the end of the day, when we're following Christ, It's the cross alone that brings salvation. It's the cross alone. In fact, so much of Mark's story is concerned with the cross that the gospel's been called a passion narrative with an extended introduction. There's so half the whole book is about one week of Jesus dying. Mark highlights the cross because everything hangs on it. I mean, think about it. Who was worse, Judas or Peter? Whose sin was worse? It's hard to say. Peter denied Jesus three times after having said, no, I'll never deny you. And yet, what was the difference? The main difference was the relationship Judas had to the cross and Peter had to the cross. Peter wept and said, I am undone. Christ prayed for him and he was restored. Judas turned away, 
and perished. So at the end of the day, Mark wants us, as we seek to follow Jesus as the sovereign, suffering Son of God, he wants the last week of Jesus' life to be our hope. If you try to be Jesus' disciple without the cross, you're missing the whole point of this gospel. It's only through the cross of Christ that we have the power and forgiveness to follow Jesus. So who is Jesus? He's the sovereign son of God. What did he come to do? He came to serve and suffer for others. How do we follow him? We follow Jesus by suffering for his sake and serving like him. And remember, Mark uses the failure of the disciples to highlight the faithfulness and patience of Jesus to save his followers. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that Jesus is patient, that it's ultimately him who saves us. Would you give us grace to follow him in humility and service, trusting his authority over our life, that what he does is good. In Jesus' name, amen.